In this passage, we see some the response of people to John the Baptist and to Jesus. And I want to explore the response of these people to John the Baptist and to Jesus and then make some applications from that. First, I would point out that both John the Baptist and Jesus had an unexpected manner about them. They were not the type of people that the folks who were critical of them had expected them to be. Let's start with John. John was a serious fellow. He was uh, very austere, uh, very sober, very grave. When we, when we have records of his preaching, like for example in, in John chapter 3, we read things like this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. John was very grave, very sober. He was serious business. He was very self-denying. He wore a garment made of camel's hair with a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. As Jesus says in this passage uh, in Luke chapter 7, He came not eating and drinking, eating no bread and drinking no wine. He was, he was marked not by indulgence, but by restraint and by abstinence. And I don't really know what a garment of camel's hair feels like, but I'm going to go ahead and guess it's not the most comfortable garment. And Jesus acknowledges as much. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Uh, behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So Jesus is setting up a contrast, which, it, which tells me camel's hair is actually not a luxurious garment. Lo and behold, it's not splendid clothing. It's not soft clothing. So... John was, was marked by seriousness, sobriety, abstinence, restraint, um, all of these kinds of things. And his manner conveyed the seriousness of sin. After all, what, if we could summarize in one word, what was John the Baptist's message? Some of you who, who, who know your Bibles should be able to have a word coming to mind. Go ahead and shout it out. Repent, right? If we were to summarize John the Baptist's message in one word, we'd have to say repent. John the Baptist was, was coming to show people how serious sin was, to bring them um, to conviction of sin with the Holy Spirit's aid and help, of course, because no man can do this on his own, but he was an appointed servant of the Lord to bring the people a sense of gravity, about the seriousness of sin and prepare them for the message of good news that Jesus was bringing. Now, John was 
His manner was unexpected and his methods were unexpected. For one thing, he, was, he worked outside of the established religious system. John wasn't a, a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He wasn't a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. John worked outside of the established religious system. That was unexpected. People probably expected that the prophets or the messiahs or the messiah when he would come would come from within the established religious system. After all, they thought we are the people of God. These are our godly leaders. And when God sends a prophet, when God sends the messiah, it'll likely be someone in the Sanhedrin. This was sort of the expectation that people would have had. And so then here's this guy, not in the Sanhedrin, but this guy crying in the wilderness. Right? Which, really and truly, they should have expected, because that was prophesied by Isaiah, that it would be a voice crying in the wilderness. But nevertheless, we all know how sometimes people's expectations deviate from Scripture. And so it was a little unusual for people to find a guy crying in the wilderness, um, prepare the way of the Lord. And let's be honest, John was just a little bit bizarre. If, if John were, uh, let's say, like out in St. John or out in um, St. Joseph or something, living in the woods and wearing a garment of camel hair and a leather belt and eating locusts and wild honey and, like, and bringing us a, some spiritual teaching, a lot of us would just think, uh, <laughs> not too sure about listening to this guy. Times change, cultures change, but that kind of behavior and garb and garment was no more normal then than it is now. So John was just a little bit of a, of a strange fellow. Now Jesus comes, and Jesus has a very different approach. Jesus eats bread and drinks wine. Jesus befriends sinners, tax collectors and sinners. So the crowds go out to John the Baptist and they hear, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And the crowds go out to Jesus and they hear a story about a son who went astray and ended up in the pigsty feeding the pigs and longing to go home, but wondering if his father would accept him. And then a story about how dad runs to the end of the driveway to welcome home his son. See, it's a very different approach, a very different emphasis. Now, I don't mean, of course, to set John and Jesus in antithesis as if they had different messages. After all, do you know the first uh, word that is recorded for us of Jesus' ministry when he began it? Repent. Mark chapter 1. When Jesus began his ministry, the first word, recorded word out of his mouth was repent. So it's the same thing as John. But you can be saying the same thing and yet have different emphases, can't you? We can think even of the style and the manner of some well-known preachers that we appreciate. And their doctrine might be very similar, but their manner might be very different. So, for example, if I say the name Paul Washington, a certain emphasis comes to mind. Whereas I could call other names and a different emphasis comes to mind. Even if really, they're doctrinally, they're saying the same thing, there's just different emphasis. Guys don't minister like one another. 
And Jesus and John didn't minister like one another. They ministered differently with different emphases. And so John the Baptist is out rebuking everybody in the wilderness. And Jesus is sitting with everybody around the table. It's the same message, but there's a different picture frame around the same picture that both John and Jesus are painting, but it's in a different picture frame, if you will. John the Baptist is eating no bread and drinking no wine. Jesus is eating bread and drinking wine, according to Luke chapter 7. And incidentally, those who um, say that the wine was non-alcoholic need to reckon with the idea that his drinking of wine brought on the accusation that he's a drunkard. So, guess what? Jesus actually drank wine with alcohol in it. John the Baptist refrained. Jesus did not refrain. He ate bread and he drank wine. John's ministry was marked by fasting, as it were. Jesus' ministry was marked by feasting, as it were. John's ministry emphasized the seriousness of sin, the gravity of the situation that the human race is in and our need to be reconciled to God. Jesus' ministry conveyed something of the joy of the gospel. The joy of repenting and going home and finding that your Father actually accepts you and actually welcomes you. Now, Jesus' manner and method was also a little unexpected, as John's was. Like John, Jesus was working outside of the established religious system. And again, this was unexpected. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He was a little baby born in Bethlehem. The wise men from the east came and and said, where is the king of the Jews? And nobody knew. They had to look up the prophecies because his birth wasn't much publicized. It didn't happen with a lot of renown. It It wasn't like when someone in the royal family is pregnant and the the tabloids follow along the pregnancy and report on what's going on and everybody tunes in to hear the name. Jesus was just born in some obscure place. And they didn't even know he had been born. So they looked it up and they said, well, it's prophesied that it would be Bethlehem. So up to Bethlehem the wise men went, but he wasn't a baby laying in a little golden crib. He was laying in a manger, a feeding truck. And so he was working outside of the established religious system also. And unlike John, whom the people who rejected Jesus in the passage before us today, um, and John, whom the people who rejected them, they criticized John as being a little too bizarre. The problem that they had with Jesus was that he was a little too normal. He was sitting around the table with everybody, eating and drinking with sinners. The nerve. Eating bread, drinking wine, just like everybody else. Right? Now, let me be clear that both manners of being are consistent with scriptural truth. Neither John's manner nor Jesus' manner was sinful. Fasting's okay, feasting's okay. Sobriety is okay. Gravity is okay. 
Right? Joy is okay. Laughter is okay. A stern face is okay. Smiling is okay too. Neither mode of being is untruthful about the nature of things. John's mode of being serves its purpose. When someone comes to us in the manner of John, it, it reminds us of the seriousness of spiritual things. When someone comes to us with Jesus' mode of being and manner of being, it reminds us of the blessedness of belonging to God and the graciousness of the gospel. Both ways of being tell the truth about how the world is. So neither John nor Jesus were being sinful in the way that they were. However, there were diverse responses to the unexpected manner of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Firstly, some people were critical of both. And this is the thrust of Jesus' teaching in the latter section of this passage in verses 31 and following. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Jesus asks. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Okay, so what this means is when we wanted you to be happy and we started playing the flute, you didn't dance like we wanted you to. When we wanted you to be sad and serious and we played a funeral dirge, you didn't weep like we wanted you to. In other words, you didn't meet our expectations. We wanted, when we wanted you to be happy, you were sad. When we wanted you to be sad, you were happy. Jesus goes on to explain in verse 33, For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, the people were not happy that John the Baptist and Jesus were not dancing to the tunes that they were playing. The people were not happy that John the Baptist and Jesus didn't meet their expectations. They didn't like the fact, the reality, that John the Baptist and Jesus were not conforming to their expectations, but rather existed and operated independent of their expectations. Playing the flute did nothing to Jesus, nor John. Playing a funeral dirge did nothing to Jesus, nor John. These men didn't live according to public opinion and public expectations. They just lived. And so when people played whatever tune they wanted to play and hoped that John and Jesus would respond a certain way and John and Jesus didn't respond a certain way, then the people were critical. But notice that the expectations that they had were really quite absurd. Nobody could win. Because if you don't eat bread and you don't drink wine, they're upset. If you do eat bread and you do drink wine, they're upset. Right? If you're not a friend of tax collectors and sinners and you rebuke them harshly, they're upset. If you sit around the table with them, they're upset. Right? So what, what can you do? The tax collectors and sinners come out to, to you and you tell them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, and you lose. 
you sit around the table with them and tell them stories about coming home and you lose. You just can't win. You just can't satisfy some people. This is the thrust of what Jesus is saying here in this passage. They're like, un- some people are like unreasonable little children who just want you to dance to whatever tune they're playing and they're going to be upset with you if you don't. And with these kind of people, you just can't win. Now, some, on the other hand, justified God. Look at verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Or as I pointed out when I read this passage, the Greek says they justified God. And that's the way the older translation, the King James puts it. They justified God. Now, let's review briefly the doctrine of justification. According to the Catechism, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So, when we are justified... God pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous for not for our own righteousness but for Christ's righteousness which is imputed to us which means it's not we become good enough for God and then God notices that okay now we've become righteous and then he accepts us quite the opposite though we have no righteousness in ourselves to speak of God counts Christ's righteousness as if it was ours And then he says, because Christ's righteousness is on this person, I accept him as righteous. Now, so for us, there's the pardoning of sin, and there's the acceptance as righteous. When we say, or when we read here in this passage, that these people justified God, does it mean that they pardoned God's sins and accepted him as righteous? Not for his own righteousness, but for the righteousness of another imputed to him. No, of course not. Because God has no sin. And so, we're using the word justified here in a slightly different sense when we read about justifying God. But justifying someone is the same thing as acknowledging that there is no defect in them. Right? So even when God justifies us, He acknowledges that there is no sin outstanding. That there is righteousness in the place of sin. There is nothing, there is no impurity. Right? And remember, we're not talking about the quality of our being. We know that we still have remaining corruption. But in God's law court, there is no corruption in us because... Christ's righteousness is ours. So as pertains to our legal standing, there is no impurity. There is no defect in us. We are accepted as righteous. So to justify someone is to say there is no defect in them. There is no impurity in them. If a judge justifies a defendant, what he's saying is there's no, there's no guilt here. This person uh, does not deserve to be punished. Rather, I will justify him. This is what the word justification means at a basic level. So, 
God doesn't need his sins pardoned, obviously, because he has none. But we may, and in fact we must, declare God righteous. We ought to declare God righteous. Because there is no defect in him. So God can only justify us after he imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. But we may, and in fact we ought to every day, justify God. We ought all the time to declare that there is no defect in God. God hasn't done anything wrong. God is just. So we declare God just. We justify God. So some people in this passage were like those who just have unreasonable expectations with whom you can't win. They want you to dance to their tune, and if you don't dance to their tune, they're, they're mad at you. And just as an as a, as a observation, anecdotal observation, um, if you try to dance to the tune of people like that, sooner or later you make a misstep and upset them anyway. So you really can't win, even if your strategy is to try to dance to whatever tune they're playing. That's besides the point, though. Some people are just not satisfied no matter what. You can't win with them. And some of the people were like that with John and Jesus. They were upset with John and Jesus because they didn't dance to the tune that they were playing. Some people, on the other hand, justified God contextually with respect to John and Jesus. Right? That's, the, that's what's going on in this passage. Is that um, in this passage, there's this debate about who Jesus is and, and whether Jesus is the Messiah who is to come or, or should we look for another. And what, what Jesus does is He endorses Himself implicitly. He says... In verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, blessed is the one who doesn't reject me because I'm not, I don't fit with his expectations. Right? Back in Isaiah chapter 35, we read about God's work of redemption. And we read in Isaiah 35, verse 5 and following, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert, and so on and so forth. So in Jesus answering the way He did, He's hearkening back to this prophecy of Isaiah. And He's like, well, John... Am I of God? Look around you. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. In other words, put two and two together. Yes, I am the one who is to come. There is no need to look for another. Now, if you heard Jesus saying that, if you were a passerby or in the crowd listening, now you're going to think, oh, so John was wrong. So maybe John is not of God. But what does Jesus go on to do? When John's messengers had gone, 
Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And the implicit answer is no. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. In other words, you didn't go out to John to see a fickle person with no conviction. Nor did you go out to John to see uh, somebody that is like a, like a rich, um, high society kind of person that is just fits with the expectations. No, it was the very fact that he was a man of conviction that drove you out to see him. It was the very fact that he was, he seemed to be a messenger sent from God, uh, even though he was operating out in the wilderness, that, that drove you out of curiosity to go and see whether he could be from God. What did you go out to see then? Jesus asks in verse 26. A prophet? Yes. In other words, he's saying, you went out to see him because he is a prophet. Because you thought he was a prophet. Because he's full of conviction. Right? It was, it was his... It was those things that marked him as probably being a unique person. Probably not just being a nothing-to-see-here person, but probably a man sent from God that drove you out there. Yes, you did go out to see a prophet. And I tell you, Jesus says, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is now, he's endorsed himself, and now Jesus is endorsing John. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So now Jesus has endorsed himself, and Jesus has endorsed John. And though there are people who reject Jesus and John because they don't dance to the tune that they're playing, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, so there was this other group of people, they declared God just. Now, what is interesting is the reason offered here in this passage for the diverse response to the unexpected manner of John and Jesus. Look at verses 29 and 30. It is those who had been baptized by John who declared God just. Those who hadn't been baptized by John were those critical of John and Jesus. Let me read it so that this is abundantly clear. When all the people heard this, and by this, as I just explained, we are talking about Jesus' endorsement of himself and of John. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Now, John's baptism was, according to Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, I quote, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. End quote. It's beyond the scope of our sermon this morning to explore questions of whether John's baptism had a precedent in proselyte baptism of those Gentiles who converted to Judaism. 
It's beyond the scope of our sermon this morning to discuss whether John's baptism was the same baptism that we practice in the church today or not, etc. We don't, we're not going to get into those kind of questions this morning. But it's sufficient for our purposes this morning to note that since John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, obviously only those who felt that they needed to repent would receive it. Obviously, only those who thought that they needed forgiveness of sins would receive it. Those who didn't think that they needed to repent would not, of course, receive a baptism of repentance. Those who did not think that they had to be forgiven of sins, of course, would not receive a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, in other words... There were those who thought that they were wrong. And the people that thought that they themselves were wrong got baptized. And then there were those who thought that they were right. And the people that thought themselves to be right didn't get baptized. Now, let's bring this to John or to Luke 7. Interestingly, it is those who thought that they were wrong in Luke 3 who justify God in Luke 7. And it is those who thought that they were right in Luke 3 who think that God has done something wrong by employing characters like John and Jesus in Luke chapter 7. So... Those who think that they themselves are right don't receive a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Those are the ones who are critical of God's servants in Luke chapter 7. Those who know that they are wrong and receive a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins are those who justify God in Luke chapter 7. So you see what's happening People either justify themselves and criticize God, or they criticize themselves and justify God. Here's the takeaway. It is a mark of the repentant to justify God, even when He doesn't do things according to our expectations. Let me say that again. It is a mark of the repentant to justify God even when He doesn't do things according to our expectations. Now this is true, of course, with respect to the plan of redemption set forth in the Bible, which is the immediate context of our passage today. John came and people didn't expect John to be like the guy and the guy who he was, but they should have been like, well, I guess I was wrong. Because God is using this guy. This is God's servant. So God is right and I'm wrong. Well, I didn't expect the Messiah to be the sort of guy that he is. But, well, I guess I was wrong. This is the Messiah God sent. So God's right and I'm wrong. This is the immediate context of the passage here. With respect to the plan of redemption, those who thought that they themselves were right, were those who were critical of the way God unfolded His plan. 
Why would God send a guy like John? Why would God send a guy like Jesus? John must not be a prophet of God. Jesus must not be the Messiah because he doesn't fit our expectations. And of course, we're right. So if we're right, then we're going to criticize God's servants. Right? That's what's going on in this passage today. But others were like, well, well, this is not what we thought, but who knows? I mean, we're not as wise as God. We're not, we're not as smart as God to make a plan of redemption. If God sent a guy wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, well, who are we to judge? God is just. I guess we were just not as smart as God. We justify Him rather than ourselves. Right? You see the difference. That's the immediate context of the passage today. But this principle of we either justify ourselves or we justify God holds true universally. And it is universally in other areas and other contexts also a mark of the repentant to justify God rather than ourselves, even when God doesn't act according to our expectations. And God often does not act according to our expectations, does He? Sometimes He provides a rescue by very unlikely means. Think, for example, of parting, parting the Red Sea. So the people were not expecting that. In fact, they were crying out in terror because they were like, well, there's no way we can get out of this. And lo and behold, God acts in an unexpected way. Or God tells Naaman, the Syrian, who came to the prophet to be cleansed of his leprosy, go, go wash in the Jordan River. And at first he's in incensed because he's like, well, there's a banana and far, far in my country, there are better rivers than the Jordan. Why, why can't I just go wash in them and be cleansed? But the Jordan was the unexpected prescription of God for the healing of his leprosy. Gideon started out with 32,000 men. God's like, no, 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 too many. We've got to whittle down this force here, down to 300. Going to war with 300 instead of 32,000. It's not our way, right? Or a crucified Messiah. Who would have thought that a man of no repute, born in some backwater parish of ancient Israel, crucified on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem, would be the Son of God, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, who takes away the sin of the world. But God often works in unexpected ways, and He often gives us a temporal rescue, even by unexpected ways, as in the parting of the sea or in the washing of the Jordan. Uh, or washing in the Jordan for the healing of leprosy. But God often acts in unexpected ways that actually don't end well temporally. Think about God's people being left in Egypt for 400 years without rescue. Many generations were born and died in slavery in Egypt without yet being rescued. So even though it was God's plan and purpose to send Moses to bring the people of Israel up out of Egypt, He left them there for a good long while. That's kind of unexpected, isn't it? If God cares for us, if Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God also, 
And if he is superior to the gods of Egypt, then why are we still here? Isn't that kind of an unexpected way of dealing with his people? Or you could think about Paul's shipwrecks and beatings, etc. He was stoned, he was lashed, his, you know, his ship went down a couple of times. You know, he spent a night and a day adrift at sea. Didn't go temporarily well. So when I say that God often acts in unexpected ways, I'm not only saying, oh, God's going to come through for you in a way that you don't expect. I'm saying you, God might actually work in a very difficult way in your life and put you in very difficult circumstances that you don't understand and that you wouldn't expect a God who loves you and cares for you to do. That you wouldn't expect a wise God to do. That you wouldn't expect a benevolent, powerful God to do. You could think of the apostles' martyrdom. All of them except John were martyred and John was exiled. Died on the island of Patmos as far as we know. You think about Hebrews 11, 36-39. Many who didn't even have the honor and the esteem and privilege of being called apostles. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Let's just take the guy sawn in two, for example. So you're stretched out and they bring out a saw and you're thinking to yourself, well, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He can overrule this situation here. He can intervene on my behalf. But then the saw cuts in, and it's like, oh, so there's no intervention coming. Kind of unexpected, isn't it? The Lord sometimes works in unexpected ways, rescuing you like parting the Red Sea, but the Lord sometimes acts in unexpected ways, letting you be son in two. Letting his people stay in Egypt for 400 years. Letting his people wander around in dens and caves and be tortured and flogged and all of these things that Hebrews 11 says, right? Now, there are difficulties in your life, even now today, that you're probably like, well, I didn't expect my life to go like this. Especially after I became a believer, I, I thought, thought that it meant that the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. And He's a good Father, isn't He? Even earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. So if He was my father and cared about me, why would I be in this situation? You see? Now what's going to happen is you're going to come to a point where you have to justify yourself and criticize God. Or you're going to have to justify God and admit that you just don't know everything. And that God's acting in a way that surprises you. And that you didn't expect, but declare Him just anyway. See, the dynamics of what's happening in this passage are much more broadly applicable than just whether John the Baptist is legit or whether Jesus is legit. The dynamics of this passage about, it's particularly, if, if, you, if you think about it, it's particularly verses 29 and 30 that we're really focusing in on 
and honing in on this morning. Those who declare God just are the repentant. And those who are not repentant reject the purpose of God for themselves and criticize God. You see? That's where I've been going with this all along is bringing us to this point where we see that these dynamics are very relevant to us even in the 21st century. When difficulty comes up, when unexpected providences happen in your life, even difficult providences, we know that a lot of people are struggling and suffering in many ways these days. Uh, Obviously there's the COVID going around, but you know, there's, there's other things. I'm not going to call names from the pulpit, but we know. People are having a hard time in, in, in many ways. And these things feel unexpected to us and surprising to us. God isn't dancing to our tune. You see, we play a tune and God's not dancing. We change a different, we change our song and play a different tune and think, well, maybe God will dance to this one. But God doesn't dance to that one either. God just does what God does. Because He's not an elected official here to do the will of the people. God is God. God is sovereign. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And the choice that's before us is whether we are going to be people that think we're right. And so if God doesn't conform to our expectations... God must be wrong. Or we're going to be people that are going to be like, we don't understand what God is doing. It kind of surprised us. The way that He unfolded providence in our lives. But God is just. God is without defect. God is without blemish. I can't fault Him for anything. There's no unrighteousness in Him. i got to justify Him. We don't know what God's purposes are or I should say it like this we don't always know what God's purposes are we don't always know what God's big picture plan is things don't always end well temporally for us but the crucified Messiah shows us the, the very fact that Jesus was crucified shows us that even when we may not understand what God is up to As the disciples didn't, you remember? At that time, they were confused. You remember the road to Emmaus even in Luke 24, when Jesus appears to a couple of them walking, and they say, we had had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. They're bewildered. They're like, we thought this guy was the Messiah, and now He's dead. We know now how the story ends, but they didn't at the time. But the very fact that Jesus was crucified that the Messiah was crucified, shows us that even when we may not understand what God is up to, and even when things don't end well temporally, and the one that you hoped would be the Messiah is laying in Joseph of Arimathea's grave, there may be, go- there may be more going on than meets the eye. And that God has plans and God has purposes which will prevail. And that doesn't mean health, wealth, and prosperity here and now. But it does mean goodness, ultimately. And that God is doing all things 
well, ultimately. That God is wise, is good, is powerful, and that we're going to trust Him and justify Him no matter how He unfolds providence in our lives. We'll justify God rather than ourselves.